we're going to be preaching or reading out of Acts 15 this morning, so I invite you to go ahead and find that, Acts 15, starting at verse 12. It's also a new version if you're using your phone. Um, in your Bible, you can find it on the appropriate page. And as you're finding that, uh, I want to, you to imagine a scenario. Uh, this is from a real church in our country, in a real place. Um, imagine the first Sunday that a, a couple comes to visit this church. Uh, they reflected that the visit was very warm and welcoming. They walked in the door. They felt greeted. They were greeted as they walked in, and uh, they felt the teaching was good. They were encouraged to come back for week two. Uh, when they came back for the second week, they reflected that uh, upon coming in the door of this particular place, uh, everybody was gathered around, all the people that were supposed to be greeting the ushers and greeters were gathered in a huddle talking to one another. They physically had to walk around the people who were supposed to be greeting them to find their seat and were not warmly greeted by anybody, uh, nor did find, they find the reception at all like the previous week and said, if the second week was our first week, we never would have come back. That's frustrating, isn't it? And we know those scenarios. We've, we've been in those perhaps in church scenarios. We've been in those maybe at places where we should be welcome, but we aren't for whatever reason, whether it's a restaurant, a hotel, uh, a business of some kind, where you just feel like an outsider. Um, but we're going to take the next five weeks because I think in a, a healthy environment and a healthy church environment, uh, we should be constantly assessing how we can do our mission better. So we're going to look at how do we warmly welcome those who come into the doors of the church. And it seems kind of ill-timed on one hand because we, we're, we're kind of cloistered. And yet at the same time, I think this is one of those, and I'll mention this later on, that God gives us natural advantages sometimes that we don't want to squander. So we want to be able to consider how we can still be welcoming and hospitable no matter where we are as God's people. So all of it will work together perfectly fine as we go forward. We're looking at being warmly welcomed and creating a better place of belonging among God's people. And that can not just affect the Sunday morning experience, but small groups and other things like that as well as God's people. So I'll give you two more church examples, though, of visiting churches. And I know if you've been here for a while, you've heard uh, many stories of Stephanie and I in our first years of marriage um, in Vancouver, British Columbia. We visited a ton of churches trying to get connected, and it was really tough and frustrating at times. And I remember we got invited to an Easter service by somebody that Stephanie worked with at a, at a fairly sizable church, especially for that city, because um, most of the churches are pretty small, uh, about 400 people or so in that worship service. We walked in, and we brought a little awkwardness ourselves on this one, so I'll, I'll admit that, because when we walked in, Stephanie had to make a quick trip to the side, and I was standing there at the entrance holding her purse for a moment. Now, I'm manly enough to pull it off, but it is awkward when all the regulars are walking in, and they're seeing a guy standing there with a purse. So that didn't help us, but it didn't match my shoes either, so there's that problem. But we found our seat, we went in, and the entire service was structured around the proclamation of speaking in tongues. No problem with that. I personally have no problem with that. Uh, but it wasn't done biblically. It was done just to flaunt it during the service. And everything about the service was geared towards we're the people who God has basically chosen to, to be the people. And if you're not doing these things that we're doing, you're outsiders and you're always going to feel that way. And it felt like it, the entire service. It felt like it. We did not belong in this place. Consequently, we also, uh, at the same time in our life, would go to an evening service at a little Presbyterian church down the street from where we lived. Uh, and it was, it was kind of our, our 
one thing that we were able to do every week because we tried out different places on Sunday, but we always went to this evening service. We felt very included, about 40 people, small little service, very engaging, very fun, very simple. And there was a, a sort of a matriarch and patriarch of the church, I would call them, some senior elders in the church um, who had just taken it upon themselves since they too were internationals, that uh, anybody that was international there, over which they had lots, uh, not from Canada, they would kind of take them under their wing. And I remember the first Christmas we were there, we were 2,000 miles away from home, and they invited us and a lot of other uh, international uh, students and folks that were working there to their home for a Christmas afternoon meal. And we felt warmly welcomed. And when I think on both of those scenarios, I, we have plenty more stories, but I think of both of those scenarios, I don't remember the content of the message at that church, the first church I mentioned. I don't. I remember details about things. I don't remember anything about the message, really, and what, what message, other than we're really cool because we can speak in tongues, was being delivered. When I think of the other scenario of the Christmas meal, I can think of some conversation I had, particularly one because it was just fascinating to me, but otherwise I can't think of a lot of the conversation I had. But what I can remember is how I felt. I can remember how I felt in both those cases. I felt excluded in one, and I felt included and warmly welcomed in another. And that's often what we remember, isn't it? We do remember content of things, absolutely. Otherwise, it wouldn't be up here. But we definitely remember how we feel if we've been welcomed or unwelcomed. And we remember the places, we remember what it was like. And so that's why I think it's really important for us to look and say, how do people feel when they want to join us. It's not just about feelings, but that has a big impact. How do they feel when they come to join us? Do they feel like they can be a part of this place and belong, and belong in a timely manner that brings meaning and purpose and be a part of the mission? I think it's a really important question to ask, and I think the, the early church faced hurdles where they had to ask those very same questions. So it's really fun to look at the book of Acts and see how does the early church Ask those very same kinds of questions. And so let's go to Acts 15, 12 through 21. And here's our, our passage for the day. 19 is the key verse I was landing on as I planned this. It says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the early church was facing an identity crisis at this point. Things had been rolling along nicely in Jerusalem for the most part, but then as it expanded outside of Jerusalem, things got a little difficult. 
And so the identity crisis that they're facing is what we would face in any identity crisis. Who am I and what am I supposed to do with myself, right? That's what they're facing as a people. Who are we? Are we just a Jewish sect or are we something bigger than that? Has God done something new here in a new way with us? Now, James is clearing this up by bringing in Amos, this passage from Amos. By bringing this in, he's saying, look, what we kind of thought was just this like, extra task we had in the Old Testament, maybe including some Gentiles along the way. Actually, that appears to have been a pretty important thing for God. That's why he covenanted with the people and set them aside to be a nation of priests to do what? To reach the Gentiles. That's what was going on. And so he's flagging, uh, he's looking back to what was, to the prophets, and saying, hey, this was God's plan. What we're seeing, these the, the trouble that we're seeing of figuring out if a Gentile can come in and has to be circumcised or follow the dietary laws or those kinds of things, that part we can iron out. But the fact that Gentiles are coming in, that was supposed to happen. That's the mission. That's what we're on about. The Old Testament talks about it. Prophets talk about it. Paul also brings this up in Galatians 3, um, and it'll come up on the screen for you. Uh, but Galatians appears to be going on roughly about the same time as this is all going on. Paul seems to be addressing some of this situation. Galatians 3, 7 through 8 says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So what we can see is that God's promise for Abraham, it was not just for Abraham's family. It was to be from Abraham's family. And you can see this is where they, they're trying to figure out who are we. The covenant was not simply supposed to just stay within the covenant people. It was always supposed to be expanded out. It was always bigger than they had realized. And as the church, I want to point out that we're a continuation of that blessing. It doesn't work out that the covenant comes along, Jesus fulfills it, and then... Yes, Jesus starts something new, but it's in continuity with the promises that were already there in the covenant. He fulfills it so that we can expand it. We're part of that. And frankly, I'm glad they ironed out their identity crisis because as I perceive 98.6% of us are Gentiles in the room and at home probably, right? So thanks be to God that they ironed this bit out, right? Otherwise we wouldn't be here. As a church, we're a continuation of that blessing. The blessing that God has of salvation is not simply for us. It's supposed to come from us. We can't save, but we can certainly take the message out, and we're supposed to. That's our job. Secondly, when they're asking them their identity crisis, not just who are we. We're more than just a Jewish sect. We're just God's done something bigger through Jesus here. The second question is, why are we here? What are we supposed to do? Which is right there, and that we're supposed to extend the blessing in some way. And Peter, Peter clears this up as well. Back in Acts 15, 8 through 9, Peter's giving testimony, and he says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Salvation, as it turns out, through Jesus, is for Jew and Gentile both, not for one or the other. God's kingdom as we discover in the book of Acts, and this is kind of one of those pinnacle moments, God's kingdom is bigger than our assumptions and quite often bigger than our practices. 
That is, what we think God is doing is we're thinking too small quite often. And the way we practice our faith sometimes is a little too narrow for what God may be doing. And I want to tell you my assumptions today and my point as we get into this and this thrusts us into this whole series. When we hear the word Gentiles, what it means in the original text is anybody who's not Jewish. Ha-ethne. Ethne is the Greek word that's used there, which we get ethnicity. Um, everybody that's not Jewish is a Gentile. Um, but when we're talking about it within the church context and how to understand that within our own context, we want to recognize that that's anybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ is what we're thinking. But we can also expand the same principles to those who know Christ but need a home and a church home. So both those things can be at play at the same time. Because the title of the sermon is Frustrating the Gentiles, and we'll see where they ran into frustrations along the way in the early church. When I talk about the church, just so we're clear, I'm talking about those who have said yes to Jesus Christ and are disciples of Jesus Christ. Not the building, and not even the worship service and the, the elements of doing church, but the church are the people who follow Jesus Christ. The, the bride of Christ, we sang it this morning, the body of Christ, the family, whatever image you want to use from the New Testament, they're the people who have said yes to Jesus, disciples following him to be made in the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the church. And we're gathered together by the Holy Spirit. That's why we can be at home and here and be gathered together by the Holy Spirit rather than a collection of individuals who happen to be in the same place at the same time. Right? It's, it's a much bigger idea than sometimes we, we give credit to. And I forget that regularly. The Gentiles are being asked to, to become something new in Christ here. And so it's important to recognize that when the text says that he accepted the Gentiles, that sometimes we use that in a real slippery way in our culture. Accepted here means he took them in, but they weren't supposed to stay the same. They're supposed to become a new creation in Christ just like everyone else. And that comes with it certain theological and practical requirements that we're seeing here in the text. So something's supposed to change in them. It's not that they're just brought in and nothing needs to change from that point on. Otherwise, I think we have to question the whole Old Testament as well. So the church is made up of believers. But when we gather together in things like worship, where we're here to glorify God, and various ministries and things like that, we know that among us are going to be people who have said yes to Jesus and some people who haven't. And that's the category and the area that we're talking about right now and through this series. How can we be a place of warm welcome in order for people to believe and belong. I would suggest it's a real interesting historical thing that the early church had certain advantages to the spread of the gospel. And just indulge me for a moment, my historical nerve, if you would. This is like basic church history, if you ever get into church history and go right in the New Testament period and as it's being written. I'll give you four interesting things about the ancient Roman Empire that were advantages that the early church took use of. The, one, the first thing is they had the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana is what it's called, that uh, Roman soldiers quelled all kinds of problems within the empire. Generally speaking, there were problems uh, quite often, but generally speaking, the Roman Empire was at almost its full expansion uh, in the world at the time of the New Testament, and they did not deal with unrest kindly. Uh, and so there weren't a lot of fears that people had generally in most of the empire of marauders coming in and attacking them with regularity because they had some protection. Even if they didn't like the Roman Empire being their overseers, they had some protection there. 
Uh, Also, the Romans had built this remarkable road system. So when we see the letters of the New Testament church and we see Paul and Peter and Barnabas traveling around, they could travel on a pretty uh, extensive road system throughout the ancient Roman Empire. And on that road system, uh, they were protected, generally speaking, by that same piece of Rome, that kind of thing. So it was safe to travel. You could travel all over the place. And it's something like an ancient version of the interstate highway system, right? It'll get you to the major places and it'll get you pretty fast and pretty safely. They also had the issue of language, that even though there were a lot of individual dialects all over the Roman Empire, everybody spoke Greek, at least to some degree. You can see that with uh, Luke in the the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, his Greek is wonderful because that's his first language. John, it's his second language, clearly, but everybody could understand it. He could work in it. That's why the New Testament was written in Greek. And third, and this is not to be underscored, there was a great spiritual hunger in the ancient Roman Empire because the gods that they worshipped didn't do much for them on a day-to-day basis, didn't ask much of them ethically or morally, so people could kind of operate on their own to a sense, go make a sacrifice, a pinch of something, or sacrifice something to that, something to that extent, and it wasn't going to do much for you other than appease that God. Maybe it might bring a material blessing you hoped, that sort of a thing. Yet I would suggest that if the early church wasn't careful, they were in danger of squandering all these advantages because there were hurdles and frustrations that were in front of them. And if we look, uh, Peter, not Peter, James says, it's my, my judgment that we shouldn't make it difficult, extra burdensome for the Gentiles to come in. But unintentionally at times, the early church did make it burdensome and frustrating sometimes despite the advantages that they had. You can see, and we'll go through these over the next few weeks, the the issue of language in Acts chapter 2 becomes a burden. It's easily overcome in some sense, but it becomes a burden that the message needs to be understood and understood in the language of the people. Then the issue of inconsistent care within the early church that we see in Acts 6 and also the leadership crisis that comes with that. How How do we organize ourselves in such a way that we care for everybody within uh, the people of God well and appropriately. Then you see that they had too narrow of a mission focus, which is what they're really struggling with right here, right? It's not until persecution pushes them out of Jerusalem that they actually start to look beyond Jerusalem and beyond being a Jewish sect in that sense. And then there's unclarity of belief and practice. What does it really mean to actually then uh, be a disciple of Christ given the history and the past that we have out of the Old Testament? What needs to be kept and what needs to be not worried about in that sense? They talked about all those. They worked through all those. They had to for their very survival as a church and to be faithful to the mission. And we can ask as well, if there were all those frustrations, there's also that spiritual hunger I talked about. Why did Gentiles convert? Why were they coming to the Lord in the first place? And you can see this all over the New Testament. So this is a quick summary of kind of under the heading of salvation. What did they see in that salvation? They saw healing quite directly, quite often, healing of people. They saw that the power of the Holy Spirit was greater than the power of the Roman Empire. I mean, Roman jails had no power, told Paul or Silas. Roman soldiers did have their whole families baptized and came to Christ because they saw the power of the Spirit. There was unity in the spirit that they didn't see and value and, and, uh, and the image of God seen in them in the Roman Empire 
In Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, right? We're equal at the foot of the cross. That wasn't the case in the empire around us. Everybody's unequal unless you've got money or power. And then they had purpose, real purpose. They saw all these things. They came to, the, they came to Christ. They wanted in, and the early church had to figure out, how do we not frustrate this, what God is doing among us? question of course for us is why does this matter for us today other than the fact that if they wouldn't have ironed it out we wouldn't be here fellow gentiles right why does this matter to us today to go over these sorts of things well if we look back at verse 20 uh, james says instead after he says we shouldn't frustrate the gentiles instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality from the meat of strangled animals and from blood the reason is food concerns were fellowship concerns if we just take the sexual immorality out of the picture for a moment, look at the food concerns just for a second here. They're fellowship concerns. There's some of what they're saying here that's definitely moral or theological in a, in a real sense. The sexual immorality piece definitely is, and even the food sacrifice to idols is probably both a, a fellowship, a social issue, but it's also a moral issue and a theological issue. The other two are probably more of what we'd call a social issue. That is to say, um, if we were to, just almost a, almost a tongue-in-cheek example, if we were to decide to do a potluck with one of our reformed churches in town, uh, those bearded craft beer drinking reformed churches, and that was the drink of choice that's there, some people would be okay with that in the room and some people wouldn't. That would be a burden to fellowship, wouldn't it? That's the same thing going on here. How in the world are we going to eat at the same table if we're eating stuff that some of us have grown up our entire lives knowing is against the law of God and is repulsive to even be around. And you guys have no problem with it. they got to figure out how to even eat together. That's half of what's going on here. And then, of course, the circumcision piece, which is what precipitates all of this. We didn't read that part, but that's what agitates everything. That when Paul and Barnabas go and preach to everybody and people are coming to the Lord and then a group of people come afterwards and say, yeah, but now you have to be circumcised and follow these dietary laws. And that's what's at issue here. Do they? Is that what they're supposed to do? Because circumcision isn't listed as one of the four things here, four categories. Is that what they have to do? And the question becomes to the, the early council in Jerusalem, is it just Jesus that saves or does Moses also need to do some saving here? That's the question that's being asked. Galatians addresses it quite well, too. The law demonstrated God's character, but now Jesus does in a completely different way. And we're saved through him. Some of the things that were marks of the covenant people don't need to be marks of the new covenant people, in a sense, now in the fulfilled covenant of God. And some of those things were always morally wrong and always going to be morally wrong, so we need to follow those. Some of these things we can do as a compromise to be able to fellowship together and walk forward as this new people, and some of these things we shouldn't ever do anyways. That's what's going on in that list. But salvation is only through Jesus Christ, and no other is what they're proclaiming. We shouldn't squander the gifts that God gives, no matter how he delivers them, and God delivers them uh, the gift of kind of a crisis in a sense, but he also delivers them the solutions to figure it out here. As we consider then uh, how we make sure that we're committed to being a hospitable and welcoming presence, I want to point out one of the things that I think is one of the remarkable and wonderful things about serving here. 
We have people, uh, let's just say it out loud. Relationship is what fuels this place, right? Relationship. I mean, of course, with salvation through Jesus Christ, we recognize all of that. But we covenant together to do God's mission. That's why the name. And also, we like being together. Relationship fuels us. So much so that, as we've seen, when people have had to move away, we have people who have had to move away over the years for jobs and other reasons, and they still consider this their actual church home and long to be back here. The relationship matters. That's a really big testimony for being welcomed and received. How can we make that possibility the reality for as many people as possible? That's the question we're simply asking. How do we continue to make it so that there aren't unnecessary hurdles and we squander the gift of people coming in who are interested, who want to be a part of this place? How do we make sure that all those hurdles that we can see are out of the way? And I would suggest that COVID has certainly frazzled us in our ability to do this at times. As we've seen, sometimes volunteers have to change at the last minute. Sometimes entire worship bands have to change at the last minute because people tested positive or had symptoms or this, that, or the other. But it shouldn't take us off course on our mission. It doesn't need to take us off course. It better not take us off course on our mission. Jesus has been radically hospitable to us and made us a people. How do we do the same? That's the question. Let me just give you a couple simple sort of commitment things and thoughts, and many of you are on board with this, um, but just uh, some food for thought as we think about hurdles that can be there in our commitment to uh, making sure that we're as radically hospitable as possible. And the first one I want to start with is, is one of those where we have a cultural disadvantages that sometimes pastors don't help, but that I want to point out uh, we can kind of hurdle over, uh, over the long, long haul which is this. Have you ever counted up when it comes to Sundays in the year? We get 52 Sundays out of the year. Have you ever counted up how many holidays or near holidays hit Sunday morning that affect our gathering together? I mean, I'm a pastor. I think about these things all the time, right? So if we count up the Sunday after New Year's, spring break, which could encounter be one or two Sundays, depending on how things work in the particular year. If we count up Memorial Day, Plus, now graduation uh, takes place all in one big Sunday. If we count up July 4th, I would count, if we're really going to get generous, the first two Sundays of August, eh, we're still traveling. Uh, Labor Day, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. If you start counting them up, you get at least seven days, Sundays out of the year, where we have the sort of liberty to travel and move. And we do. That's totally fine. We do that. But then we pastors because of, we sometimes get tired after Christmas and Easter, we also then take off the Sunday after Christmas and Easter, which telegraphs to an entire congregation, you can too, right? And so if you notice my pattern recently, I don't know if you have, because again, I think about these things all the time and figure you probably don't. I don't take those Sundays off um, for that very reason. And one of the things is, when we, when we actually have these sort of limited uh, times and limited amounts of people that are engaged on a particular Sunday, when a guest comes, they actually, even if they could be warmly received, see to themselves, I'm not sure this is the place for me. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. Um, that, they, that it looks like there's nothing going on if 20% of the year we're on the move and we're out. And I'm not saying you can't travel at all. That's not at all what I'm seeing. 
What I'm suggesting is this. When we have the choice to be here, even on those weekends, even when there's bad weather, not if it's icy, don't go out if it's icy and you're going to slip or something like that. But, it, you know, on those rainy days when you wake up and you're like, it'd be comfortable to stay in bed. I just want to remind us that worship is a discipline. That we don't choose to worship because I felt like it as much as we choose to worship because God is good. And we're worshiping the living God. And we're called to do it together. Yes, take vacations. Yes, stay home if you're sick. Yes, do all of those things. But let's recognize that our coming together, and I'll have a comment for online too in a moment, but our coming together is a commitment to worship the living God. It's also a commitment to encourage the body of Christ. That's what Hebrews tells us. And it's also a commitment to looking outward and reaching out. You're not just here this morning, and you're not even just online this morning for yourself if you follow Jesus Christ. You're here for the broader body of Christ to encourage one another, and you're here to be receptive to anybody who's looking for a place to believe and belong, whether they already follow Christ or whether they're thinking about it or not even sure they're thinking about it. We're supposed to be hospitable. That's part of why we wake up and do this thing. Hospitable to God, hospitable to one another, hospitable to the guests in our midst. And being here gives the people a sense that they can belong. It's not just about those who are here. God has something bigger in mind. And for those that are online, I recognize we're, we're constrained on things right now. Right? The, the word came out from the Department of Health to not go to large public gatherings uh, this week. That would include here, presumably. Um, so if you're online, be hospitable. If you're in the room, be hospitable. Yeah, we have disadvantages to the masks and those things. God can still work through these mechanisms. We need to make a commitment to recognize that part of being here is to look outward, not simply to look inward. That's what the early church had to deal with. Is this just an inward thing or is this something bigger than what is going on? The other thing that I'd point out is that, that we need to make a commitment to be hospitable in all actions uh, on Sunday morning and beyond. And um, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but sometimes we can make the assumption, if we've been here for a long time, that what is is what was and what always will be. Right? I assume every week we're going to have guests. Do we today? I'm not sure. I'm assuming that every week we're going to have guests. I'm going to speak as if we're going to have guests. We've got a guest. Thank you. I'm going to point to your mom, though, Levi. I don't want to flag a guest and make him stand. I'll make somebody. Levi, can you stand up for us and we'll pretend you're a guest? I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's what happens when you point someone else, though. But we want to be engaged to the fullest degree to be hospitable. So join a Sunday team if you can. But in one way or another, one thing I've noticed is that uh, church time is kind of funny. We think things that happened 10 years ago happened yesterday quite often. And then sometimes somebody will have been coming here for three years and be like, oh yeah, you just came, you know, like two months ago. And it's like, no, no, they didn't. And so sometimes though we feel guilty because we didn't learn somebody's name. And if three weeks go by, four weeks go by, we're afraid to ask their name. Let's be a place of grace. If you don't remember somebody's name, ask. And if somebody asks your name, don't be offended. 
Be thankful that they want to know. Ask people's stories. Meet people. Take names and take stories. That's who we should be. Finally, I want to point this out, and this is really where my heart is. Pray for guests and growth. And I don't say that, uh, as I, I talked about this a couple, uh, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, and um, I know it was misinterpreted. I say that because I believe that the fishing hole in Lincoln is way too big, and we don't have enough poles in the water. I say that because I've reoriented my life for the expansion of the kingdom of God and assume that you have too. And that we're in this as disciples of Jesus Christ to see more disciples come into the kingdom. Is anybody else on that mission, I hope, today? And so we should be praying for that, shouldn't we? I believe that pretty much every church in town is too small, no matter their size. Because there are a lot of people in this community who don't know Jesus. A lot of people in this community who don't know Jesus. I'm not praying for growth, and I do every day. I'm not praying for growth so that we get bigger and have more money or more people sitting in the seats. I'm praying for growth so that we see more disciples come into the kingdom of God. Amen? And I would ask that of all the commitments that we talked about this morning, can you commit to doing this too? Can we daily pray for growth? Because if we're daily praying for growth, then we're daily thinking about how we can be hospitable as the people of God. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. And I don't know if you've ever tried that with people that you disagree with. It humanizes them. But what if we pray for our friends? Then we're thinking about them all the time. Let's pray for growth. Pray specifically for those things. Because the promise to Abraham was not just for Abraham, it was from Abraham, right? The promise of salvation for us is not just for us, it's from us as the church. Salvation is for all, and we're on about that mission. I'm, I'm really excited to look through some of these other parts of Acts over the next few weeks to consider how we can continue to be more hospitable as a people. But let's start by praying for those that we get to be hospitable to.